Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Thank you for in, inviting me into your family, adopting into your, into your family. It's been a number of years now that our fellowships have been friends and been friends with your pastor. And you guys have been a great encouragement to us in Minnesota. Yeah. Got to do that every time. The land of the frozen chosen. Our, our uh, uh, community specifically, uh, it, it was founded 150 years ago by German Catholic granite miners. And so talk about a stoic people group. And uh, not a whole lot has changed in the last 150 years. And it was interesting, my ministry began on the east side of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and kind of in uh, a rougher neighborhood. And, and uh, people were just, it was great. You could establish rapport with someone in like two to three conversations, or maybe in two to three minutes sometimes. And, and in St. Cloud, it, it takes like two to three years before they'll even have a conversation with you. And and it, and it used to be a real kind of frustration to me, but now it's just a great challenge for God's grace. I get this picture in my mind of, of remember from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe when the enemy had frozen some of the people, and then Aslan came and he breathed on them, and they came back to life? I get this, this image of the people in central Minnesota frozen by fear, frozen by religion, frozen by the cultural constraints, and then Jesus comes in with his grace and he breathes on them and they come to life. And there's such a contrast to what they were in that frozen state and then now where they are in the Lord. And so uh, it's a privilege to pastor in that community. And I just want to say thank you to you guys for for encouraging us now over these 15 years we've been in St. Cloud. You guys are celebrating 20 years here in Aurora, and so God's done great things and wants to do even greater things. And so if you guys could turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, and we'll pray and begin. So the book of Philemon. Lord, we do indeed pray for Pastor Ed as he pours out this morning. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen him and that you'd fill him with joy even in the midst of pouring out. Lord, I pray for Pastor Jeremy back in St. Cloud and pray that the same would happen for him too, Lord, that we would just experience our fellowship with you even as we're just responding to you uh, in service, just out of the overflow of a grateful and thankful heart. And then, Lord, you just take our our meager efforts and you break them and you bless them and you multiply them miraculously and somehow Lord the masses are fed by you with your word by your spirit and to see that happen week after week Lord is such a joy it's really a gift so thank you for giving us that gift so consistently and we trust that you're going to give us that gift again today and we ask for your best now in Jesus name amen amen so my son Evan is with me and uh, he's nine years old and and uh, over the years now, for my kiddos, we've been able to take them with to Aurora uh, about once a year. And, and the threshold for coming with dad is, is nine years old. So my son Silas has come with me a few times. Josephine, my daughter, has come with me a few times. Evan's here with me now. And then I have a, another younger daughter named Willow, and she's seven. So a couple more years for her. But I was thinking about this whole, you know, land of the frozen chosen thing. And, and in, in our uh, community, we go um, ice fishing. How many of you guys have been ice fishing before? 
a surprising amount. There was even that much in the last service, but ice fishing is not for the faint of heart. And uh, well, we had a, a nice shack. And so some of my greatest memories of being Evan's age were going out with my dad into this ice shack on the middle of Mille Lacs Lake. And Mille Lacs Lake is one of the largest lakes in Minnesota. And you could actually go out on the lake with the water so frozen you could drive a semi on it. But you could go out on the lake out into the middle so far that you couldn't see any of the city lights. There was just no light pollution. So you could see the stars in a way that you could just never see them before. And so as a kid, you know, laying out there in the snow and looking up at the stars and just thinking about, you know, like David would consider when, when he was thinking about the stars, you know, Lord, I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have put in place. And when I consider those things, Lord, who am I that you would think about me? What is man that you would think about me, let alone visit me? So before we start Philemon, I want us to do the same. I want us to consider the heavens for a moment to kind of lay some groundwork for our time in the book of Philemon. How many of you have heard of the uh, Hubble Space Telescope before? Again, a lot. So it was put into orbit in the 90s with the specific purpose of taking pictures of space that we could not take from inside our atmosphere. So to put the telescope outside of our atmosphere would give a, just a much clearer picture and one of the first pictures that they took with the Hubble Space Telescope was of this, this tiny patch of sky. It would be the equivalent if you took a pencil eraser and held it at arm's length. That's how small the patch of sky was. And the reason why they chose that patch of sky was because it was the darkest patch of sky from within our atmosphere. Even with our greatest telescopes, we couldn't see anything in that patch of sky. And so what they wanted to do was to aim the telescope outside of our atmosphere at that patch of sky and expose a picture to see if they could see anything, any stars whatsoever. And so what they did is they actually aimed it into that direction, to that little patch of sky, and they opened the shutter and exposed the image for a week. So if any of you are in photography, that's, that's a long exposure. And what they were trying to do was to gather as much light as possible to see if there were any stars in that direction, any galaxies in that direction. And when they exposed the final image, not only did they see stars, but they saw galaxies. And guess how many galaxies they saw in that little tiny pencil eraser patch of sky? 5,500. 5,500 galaxies! in a patch of sky that we couldn't see any, even stars in from within our atmosphere. Now, in order to cover the entire observable universe, you know, from our vantage point, you would need 32 million patches of sky the size of a pencil eraser at arm's length, which has led to the longstanding estimate that there are at least 176 billion galaxies in our universe. Because 5,500 times 32 million is 176 billion. And for a long time, that's how many galaxies that scientists thought were in our universe. However, I read an article from a PhD astrophysicist a few weeks ago, and they said that was 90s technology. We now know that there are at least 2 trillion galaxies in our universe. And every galaxy has on average 200 to 400 billion stars. 
When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you put in place, who am I that you would think about me? Now, I'm curious, how does that make you feel? There's probably a gamut of emotion here, isn't there? For some of you who know God and know God's word, you're thinking of some scriptures that have to do with stars and the number of stars and God's thoughts towards you. And we'll read those in just a second. But for some of you here that may not know the Lord and may not know his word, that may make you feel really small, as it should, I guess. Maybe even insignificant, as it should, I guess. Maybe even worthless, as it should, I guess, if there's no God. And if God's word's not true. I mean, really, you are one of almost 8 billion people on this planet. One of almost 8 billion people on the planet. And this planet is really just a speck of dust flying around a tiny little spark. And that tiny little spark is only one of 250 billion sparks in our galaxy. And our galaxy is only one of over 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. So if there isn't a God and his word isn't true, your value is the sum of your chemical parts. And in the grand scheme of things, you are worthless. However, there is a God, and his word is true, and he thinks about you a lot. In fact, listen to this. Psalm 147 verse 4 says, He counts the number of stars and he calls them all by name. Can you imagine that? Two trillion times 200 to 400 billion and he knows them all by name. How many of you struggle with names? You know, like I can know four people and the fifth person comes up and I'm like, ah, hey, buddy. You know, it's like, Dom, I've known you for 20 years. I know, but what's your name again? You know, I mean, God knows all the stars by name. And then God goes on to say in Psalm 139, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Now, why is that significant? Um, Evan and I, after service, are going to go down to the Sand Dunes National Park, spend a couple of days down there. Well, scientists tell us that if you were to take the number of individual grains of sand in every desert, in every seashore, and you were to add that up, the number would be similar to the number of stars in our observable universe. And God says that he thinks about you more. More than the number of stars that he knows by name. More than the grains of sand on the entire planet. And his thoughts towards you are good. He loves you. Remember David said, who am I that you would think about me, let alone visit me, let alone die for me? I mean, you might be here this morning and you, you don't know God yet and you haven't encountered his word yet. You haven't heard his promises yet. And to consider the heavens makes you feel small and insignificant and worthless. We're going to meet a man today whose name is Onesimus. 
And Onesimus wasn't just a young man. Onesimus was a slave in the Roman Empire. And a slave in the Roman Empire was, was less than human. He was considered property by society. So imagine him considering the heavens. And to make matters worse, his name means useful. His name means profitable. Can you imagine how often his enemies would use that to add insult to injury and to say, you're a slave. How can you be useful? How could you be profitable? You're worse than small. You're worse than insignificant. You're worse than worthless. You're a piece of property. And yet, God is about to extend an invitation to this man and rescue him from the lowest place a human can have to the highest place that a human can hold, a co-heir with Christ. He's going to take him from a piece of property considered by society all the way up to seated at the king of kings table as one of the king's sons adopted into the king's family with full rights and privileges as a son forevermore, sitting next to his brother Jesus as co-heir. And yet there's a process before that happens. And we're going to talk about the process as we work our way through the book. So as we talk about that process, the same thing can happen to you today. See, all of us are Onesimus. All of us at one time were a slave to sin. All of us, like sheep, have wandered. All of us went away from our master. And we need to come back. But in order to come back, we need a mediator. And that man's name is Christ Jesus. And Paul the Apostle in this letter is following the example of his mediator, Christ Jesus, in mediating between Onesimus and his former master, Philemon. So let's look at it together and let's consider how it applies to our lives as individuals. In verse 1, it begins this way. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is being purposeful in his appeal to Philemon. He's really interceding on behalf of Onesimus. And he's being extremely careful in the way he writes this letter because in all reality, Onesimus' life is on the line. So he's being a very careful and a very purposeful peacemaker. He's writing on behalf of a slave who ran away from his master. And we're going to see later that he stole from his master in order to run away from his master. And slaves were slaughtered for much less offenses. So he'd have to be careful in writing this letter. Now, we think about when people got slaved, in the, slaved, when they got saved in the Roman Empire as slaves, or they got saved in the Roman Empire as a master. People got saved in all sorts of different conditions during the Roman Empire. And think about those first few days of discipleship. That would be kind of a difficult journey, wouldn't it? As you would help somebody in the middle of the state that they were in as they gave their life to Christ of how to function now the day after giving their life to Christ and to help them see what is cultural and what is biblical and to find the courage to follow what is biblical, not what is cultural. 
Slavery may have been the backbone of Roman society at the time. It may have been fully accepted by the culture, but it flew in the face of Scripture because Scripture says that you were made in the image of God, every single one of you, and that's how you have value. You are not worthless. When God thinks of all of creation, He thinks about you more than all of creation combined. He values you more than all of creation combined. I'm not saying you all. You. You have value in the eyes of God. You were created in His image. And yes, that image was marred a bit by your sin, but He wants to invite you in to where the blood of Jesus will cleanse that again And you will go from that lowest place of slave to sin to the highest place a human can hold, co-heir with Christ. And Paul wants to see the same thing happen with Onesimus and Philemon as they reconcile. And so he writes very purposefully to Philemon and very carefully. And so it's not flattery, it's not manipulation, it's careful mediation. He starts out again in verse 1 saying, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul is reminding Philemon, hey, listen, I'm in prison for preaching the gospel, for preaching the gospel. And I count myself a prisoner of Jesus because he could release me at any time. And until he releases me, I want to be productive. I want to serve the Lord. I'm serving alongside of Timothy. And he and I are writing on behalf of another brother, which you'll meet in just a second. A man with another name, which we'll meet in just a second. But Paul is writing a sort of precursor to prepare Philemon's heart to hear that name once again so that he can react biblically and not culturally. And so he's writing to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus, whom Paul calls a fellow soldier, and to the church that's in their house. So Philemon, he's probably the father. Aphia is probably the mother. Archippus could be their son, but Paul calls him a soldier, so he's most likely the pastor of the church that meets in their home. You know, for the first few centuries, churches didn't meet in their own buildings. They didn't have their own buildings. They primarily met in homes. It wasn't until after the third century that they started to purchase their own buildings. I think it's interesting here with your fellowship, you've got reminders in the corners of the building that you started in, and it was in a junior high school, and so you have some of the chairs here. And I think that's wonderful. You love the past and you're living the future. It's fantastic. You're celebrating 20 years. Look what God has done. And I find it interesting because for our fellowship, we began in a funeral home in St. Cloud. You know, we were meeting outside because we didn't have any money. So we just met in a park and we opened up our Bibles. But when October or November hits in Minnesota, you want to get indoors. So we begged and pleaded with this funeral home for us to be able to meet in there. And they only charged us 100 bucks a week in the beginning, which we struggled to afford. But it had a parking lot. It had 80 chairs in the sanctuary. It was just a dream. Yeah, we had to make all sorts of odd jokes to try to get past the awkwardness. You know, like people are dying to go to church, you know. And <laughs> we can't be too Pentecostal because we might raise the dead and ruin their business, you know. And But these chairs make me think if if the Lord were ever to entrust a building to us, we'd have to put coffins around the edges to remind ourselves where we came from. But maybe that would work well for preaching the gospel. Do you know what? Maybe kind of put the priorities in place there. 
But he writes to these friends of his, beloved friends, fellow laborers, fellow soldiers. He writes to the church in their house, and then he reminds them of the grace and the peace of God in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So all of this, again, is a precursor. It's not flattery. It's not manipulation. It's a precursor to a difficult thing that Paul is about to ask him to do. And so he's reminding him of things that will help him to do, to do this biblically, not culturally. So far, he's reminded him that Paul himself is in prison for preaching the gospel. He called Philemon a friend and a fellow laborer. He reminded Philemon of God's unmerited favor. I mean, don't forget, Philemon, that you were once a slave to sin. And do you remember when I led you to the Lord and God rescued you from the lowest position a human can hold to the highest position that a human can have and he made you a co-heir with Christ after you were a slave to sin? Don't forget about the grace of God that's on your life, friend, and the peace of God that you now enjoy. He told Philemon that he prays for him and, and thanks God for him. He told Philemon that he's heard of his love, that he's heard of his faith toward all the saints. He told Philemon that he's heard, he's experienced personally how Philemon's ministry has refreshed the hearts of the saints. And again, none of this is flattery. It's purposeful persuasion. It's careful mediation on behalf of his friend named Onesimus. And when Philemon hears that name, when Philemon reads that name, Onesimus, he's going to have a reaction. And Paul wants him to be careful to have his reaction in his new nature, not in his old nature, from the proper perspective, seeing Onesimus how God sees Onesimus. And remember as we go through this, all of us are Onesimus. All of us are. So now verse 8, here this man is mentioned. Verse 8 says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once un." profitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Do you remember back in the beginning, what does Onesimus' name mean? Profitable. Paul's playing on words here for a purpose. He's saying, yeah, he was once unprofitable to you when you saw him as society sees him, as less than human, as mere property. But now through the gospel, you know that he is seated at the same place you are co-heir with Christ. You were rescued just like he was from a slave to sin. And he rescued you and he rescued him and he redeemed you and he redeemed him and now you are seated at the table of the king as brothers in the same place 
Don't forget this, Philemon. And the ministry that Paul was entering into is the ministry of a daysman. Have you ever heard that term before, a daysman? Actually comes from the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. And Job was going through such suffering, such turmoil, such difficulty that one time he cries out and he goes, oh, I wish that God were like somebody that I could take to court. I wish that he could just explain to me why this is all happening. I wish that there was a daysman between us that could lay his hand upon us both and settle this issue. And a daysman was a mediator that was friends with this one and friends with this one. And they would stand in the gap to mediate the offense and often at great personal cost. And Jesus is our daysman. Jesus is the only man that can put his hand on my shoulder who is also God and can put his hand on God's shoulder and at great personal cost mediate the offense. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. But Paul is following the example of Christ in mediating between these two friends. And he's going to say something here in a moment that sounds so similar to something that Christ would say. Let's read it together. Let's start at verse 12 this time. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Doesn't that sound like something Jesus would say? I, I want you to receive him as you would me, Father. And Father, if he's wronged you in any way, would you charge that to my account? I will repay. And Jesus has paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future in full. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the daysman. And Paul is following his example. He's writing on behalf of his friend Onesimus to his other friend Philemon. And he's saying, Philemon, would you receive him as if I were standing in front of you? How many, well, I would say all of you. I was going to say how many of you, but we all finish our prayers in a certain way. What do we say at the end of our prayers? In Jesus' name. Why do we say that? Is that like the Christian equivalent of a period? You know, like do we just, that's how we finish our thoughts? No. The reason why we say that is because that's the only way that we can approach God, right? That's the only way. And Jesus gave us that way so that we could stand before God the Father and it's as if Jesus is standing there himself and that God the Father receives us as he would receive Jesus because Jesus has paid our penalty and our price in full. Father, receive them. Father, receive Dominic 
as if you were receiving me. And if he's done anything to wrong you, would you charge it to my account? Paul, Paul is following the example of his mediator, his daysman, Jesus Christ. Verse 17 once again. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self. Besides, remember Paul's still being purposeful here. Remember when I led you to the Lord? Listen, man, you really got to prepare your heart. You got to do what's right. Yes, brother, verse 20, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Puts a little accountability on this, saying I'm going to visit you, and when I get to you, I want to see that you've received Onesimus as a brother, no longer as a slave, but as a co-heir with Christ. I'll be there soon, and I'll see what you've done. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, verse 23, in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, before we leave this little letter, I want to think a few things through. Onesimus was a slave. And he, we get a sense from this little letter that he stole from Philemon to finance his fleeing from Philemon. And he tried to hide in the city of Rome. And he thought that, you know, in Rome, there's so many millions of people, I can just hide in the city of Rome. And in the city of Rome, he just happened to bump into who? Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle does what Paul the Apostle does. He ministers to whoever's standing in front of him. And at this time, he's ministering to Onesimus. And what is he saying to Onesimus? Onesimus, I don't care how you feel. And I don't care how society has treated you. You are not property. You have value. You were made in the image of God. You are not worthless. That image has been marred by your sin, yes. But Jesus wants to write you a letter, you know? Jesus wants to take you to his father. And Jesus wants to say to his father, listen, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way, charge that to my account. And would you receive Onesimus as if you were receiving me? Jesus wants to take you from the lowest place a human can have as a slave to the highest place that a human can hold, a co-heir with Christ. Onesimus, what do you think? Are you in? You want to give your life to Jesus? And Onesimus says, yes. And remember, we're all Onesimus. And then after that day, discipleship begins. And I can just imagine the conversation after conversion. Here's Onesimus. He's got a brand new heart. He's sensitive to sin. And he's thinking about the ways that he sinned very recently. He's thinking about how he stole from his former master. And even though it doesn't make sense, and even though it's really tempting to just forget what's behind and strain on towards what is ahead, Onesimus in his heart feels like, I gotta make this right. I stole from Philemon. I gotta make this right. And so he talks to Paul and he's like, hey, listen, I stole from my former master and I feel like I need to make it right. And his name is Philemon. And then Paul the apostle goes, Philemon, I know him. I know him. We're friends. I'll write you a letter. 
And now imagine this. In order to make it right, Onesimus has to take that letter and go all the way back to Philemon and find the courage to walk up to Philemon and hope that he's going to treat him biblically and not culturally. Because remember, slaves were slaughtered for much less offenses. And then he hands him the letter in hopes that he reads the letter before he reacts. And we have a pretty good indication that his reception was good because we have the letter. We also have from church history the name of the pastor in the church in Ephesus not long after this interaction. And guess what the name of the pastor was? Onesimus. How radical is that? How God was able to rescue and redeem a life where society said that they were less than human, mere property, and he elevated him to the highest position that a human can hold, way past pastor, all the way to co-heir with Christ. And that's where you and I as brothers and sisters are seated right now. I think that's remarkable. But I also want to think about Onesimus's name. Remember, all of us are Onesimus. And some of you are still sitting here today thinking, I'm less than small in relation to all of creation. I'm less than insignificant in relation to all creation. I'm less than worthless in relation to all of creation. And that's the way that you feel. Some of you maybe don't feel like you are worthless. Maybe some of you feel like your work is worthless. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like what you're doing for the Lord to impact eternity just really isn't even making a dent? And some days you finish your days where like, why do I even try? You know, I think of my relationship here with Pastor Ed and, and, and Calvary Church, and I'm so thankful for the gracious invitation that Ed extends to me over the years. And, and I just I kind of want to highlight the, the difference in scope of our ministries. There's, there's been plenty of times where Ed has invited me out. There was a specific time where Ed invited me out here to speak. And at that time, my um, youngest was just born, and my wife was going to the nursing mom's room. And I had to chuckle because I opened the nursing mom's room, and the nursing mom's room was the same size as our sanctuary back in St. Cloud. <laughs> I mean, like, your nursing mom's room. And there were, there were times during those days where we'd have three people come to midweek and one of them was arguing with me the entire service. And you, you leave the, the midweek service and you're like, man, I worked all week and I'm, what is my life even doing? I mean, I just don't think I'm even making a dent. I'm just stupid. You ever had a day consumed with stupid? You know, Last week, I had this day where I go to take the kids to school. I get in the van, and I hear, fuh, 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 fuh. like, oh, man, I got a flat tire. Took two hours out of my day. Still had all my responsibilities to fulfill. And the rest of the day just got consumed with nonsense. And you get to the end of the day, and you're just thinking, oh, come on. So much work, so much effort, and I don't feel like I'm accomplishing a thing. It's a common feeling. Isaiah the prophet had this feeling. In fact, there's a remarkable scripture where he said in Isaiah 49, 4, in spite of my hard work, I feel as if I haven't accomplished anything. I've used up all my strength. It seems as if everything I've done is worthless. You ever felt that way? Maybe not you yourself being worthless, but your work is worthless. Well, let me say emphatically upon the authority of Scripture that you are not worthless and your work is not worthless. You might feel that way, 
But feelings, although tangible and real and oftentimes ever-present, are not the greatest communicators of truth. Can I get an amen? Can I say it again? Feelings, although tangible and real and oftentimes ever-present, are not the greatest communicators of truth. What is the greatest communicator of truth? God's Word. What does God's Word have to say about you? You have value. You were created in the image of God. He loves you. He didn't just look at you. He didn't just visit you. He died for you to rescue you, to elevate you to the highest position a human can hold. And now, after you were saved and out of the overflow comes grateful service, all of that blesses the heart of God. Even if it's a widow's mite, even if it's a mustard seed, even if it's a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, man, that's what he's looking for. He didn't save you to impact eternity. He saved you for fellowship with him. That's what he longs for. That's what's important to him. That's what's valuable to him. And that is accessible to every single one of us. That's where true greatness is found. Do you remember when the apostles were always arguing about who was the most important person? And then they sent their mom to lobby so that they could be on the left hand and the right hand. And I love that Jesus didn't rebuke them for their desire for greatness. He just defined what true greatness is. He said, listen, guys, it's not like the world. It's not like how the world works. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to learn how to be a servant. And so he defined greatness as service. And what did that do? It made greatness accessible to every single believer. Your heart was saved, your heart was sealed, your heart overflows with the Holy Spirit, and out of the overflow you love the Lord. Whether it's a widow's mite or a mustard seed or a cup of cold water, oh, does that bless the heart of God. You leave the results and the comparisons and all that nonsense to Him. You just hand Him your loaves and fishes and trust that He will break them and bless them and miraculously multiply them to feed the masses with His Word. His Word is the greatest communicator of truth. Listen to His Word now. But let us give thanks to God. He wins the battle for us because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Always give yourselves completely to the work of the Lord. Because you belong to the Lord, you know that your work is not worthless. <laughs> you might have to read that again. I might have to read that again. So there's, there's one little passage here that I want to read to you for those of you who are still struggling with the decision to surrender to Jesus or not. You considered the heavens with us. You considered the moon and the stars, the work of God's fingers. That made you feel small. That may have made you feel insignificant. That may have made you feel worthless. And you know that you need to go back to your master whom you've run away from and this needs to be made right. And you know that Jesus has given you a letter. And that letter says, receive him or receive her as if you would receive me. And if they've done anything to harm you or to, to, to go against you, would you charge that to my account? And you know you have that letter. You know you have the ability to go to God in Jesus' name. But you're still scared. You're about to walk into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your heart's beating a mile a minute because you know eternity is on the line, and it is. And you just need someone to go with you. And is that possible? Well, I, I was reading yesterday in Colossians and Onesimus' name is mentioned 
at the end of Colossians and it's mentioned in relation to another man. I'll read it to you. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. I love that. What does that tell you? It tells you that Tychicus went back to Philemon with Onesimus. Onesimus still had to approach his master, his former master. But Tychicus was there with him. I'm in your corner. I'm on your side. Let's go to him together. And I believe often that's the ministry of a pastor. Listen, you've got to make this right with the Lord. You're the one that has to go to him. You don't have to do anything. You, you couldn't anyway. Jesus has done all the work. Jesus is your daysman. Jesus is your mediator. Jesus paid your price. Jesus has given you the letter. You still got to go to God though and say, I surrender. Please save me from being a slave to my sin. Please rescue me, redeem me, elevate me to the highest position a human can hold, a co-heir with Christ. And if you find that difficult in and of itself, I would count it a great privilege to go to God with you. That's what this is right now. We will go to God together and you will see how the Father will receive you as a son or a daughter, full rights and privileges forever. So what are you waiting for? Right now, this is it. You traveled all the way back from Rome, all the way to Colossae. You're standing before your former master. You know you've offended him. You know you stole from him. But you have a mediator that made it all right. You want to go to him? Want to settle this? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it together. So you might not have the words. And I count it a great privilege to kind of walk you through those words. And you need to know that God's not so concerned about the words as he is the attitude of your heart. If you realize all this is true and all of this applies to you and you are Onesimus, then let's go to God. Let's settle this. So pray with me, would you? God, Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to pay my price, to pay my penalty. I pray that you would forgive me and that you would receive me into your family. Would you please give me your Holy Spirit and fill me to overflowing. Help me to serve you and love you out of the overflow all of the days I have left on this earth and on into eternity. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for rescuing me. I thank you for redeeming me. I thank you for receiving me into your family. I love you, Lord. Please lead me now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.